Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. If you told me that I would have the drummer from Suicide Silence on the podcast, I would not have believed you. And the fact that I was able to have Josh on the podcast and we talked a lot about his time with Suicide Silence, it was awesome for me to be able to pick his brain and get to know a lot more about him and his time with the band because when I was younger, I was just a fan, but I never really dived too deep into who the members were. I just knew him as this guy who would show up and wear this crazy mask and put on a great performance. So the fact that we were able to link up and talk about his time with the band and his time in the desert, which always has a special place in my heart. I I love talking about where I'm from with people, especially if they're able to experience it themselves. So I'm really happy Josh was able to come on the podcast and talk to me. And I want to just give a huge shout out to Gabe Ochoa from Bound in Blood, Darsum. He linked me up with Josh and I'm just really grateful for any help that I get with the podcast. So thank you, Gabe. And I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, welcome Josh to the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Josh Goddard. And you used to drum for the band Suicide Silence? That's correct. From about oh, late 2003 to 2006, somewhere around there. Okay. And we're like at the tail end of 2019. That sounds like forever ago. It is forever ago. My goodness. Um, doing the math, it's nearly half my life ago. <laughs> okay. So let's jump back to the early 2000s. Can you talk about how um, you even got uh, to join Suicide Silence, how the band formed? Sure. So the, my goodness, I think I was the second or third official drummer. Uh, Suicide Silence was started by Chris Garza and uh, Brandon uh, Trahan, the uh, former Impending Doom drummer and a band called The Final Bird and a bunch of other stuff, a terrific drummer um, and a close friend, um, along with a guy named Tanner Womack. And I don't know exactly how they formed. Um, You know, I know that at one point um, it was Tanner, Chris, a guy named Josh Tefano who played guitar and a guy named Justin Tefano, his brother, who was for, for my recollection was the um, original drummer anyway after Brandon and uh, Justin was just a terrific drummer he had so many chops he was a as I recall a, a jazz trained drummer and he was just terrific and I don't recall who they had on bass or guitar but it was that main group um, originally I was going to play guitar in a band called Dying in Dreams which was uh, Mitch's um, second band after a band he had called Breakaway um, and Dying in Dreams was Mitch, um, his brother Cliff, 
um, a guy named Mike Olheiser who joined Suicide Silence uh, later, um, Josh Stefano, and then uh, Brandon Trahan on drums. And I recall Brandon and Josh over at a place I was living teaching me some of the, uh, um, the guitar uh, parts. But um, Brandon had joined Final Burden, and uh, which is a band based out of, I want to say, Elsinore, somewhere down in uh, that part of uh, the Inland Empire. And uh, Dying in Dreams fell apart only after maybe less than a year, maybe only a few months. I don't know. They had played a few shows. And uh, the Tanner had, uh, who we all knew from high school, I'd gone to school with high school, uh, gone to high school with, uh, with Tanner and Mitch and uh, um, Josh Stefano, who we refer to as little Josh. He's actually a very normal person, but because I'm like seven feet tall, um, they called him little Josh, just the, the point of difference between he and myself. Um, but uh Tanner, uh, who was the original singer of Suicide Silence, had invited Mitch to come on as the second singer. And uh, at some point, uh, Justin, the drummer, um, decided he wasn't going to play anymore. And since I was living with Mitch at the time, he had asked if I wanted to play for them. I had just started drumming. And when I mean just, I mean months worth of drumming. Um, I had no idea how to do a blast beat let alone keep tempo um absolutely horrible i mean what a what a step down from justin who was a trained just professional drummer terrific drummer but um mitch had asked me to uh join and so i did um and uh, the lineup that i was uh um, that that was um, established that i joined was tanner and mitch on vocals chris um, little josh on guitar and then Mike Olheiser from Dying in Dreams had come on as bass, and then I was on the drums, and we played three shows like that before Tanner uh, had eventually left, and it was just the five of us, and off we went. Damn. Uh, just want to pause real quick. You mentioned the band The Final Burden, and they are from Lake Elsinore. I, I'm just really surprised that that band never took off, um, being able to see them when they were active, I thought they were just like one of those bands that was going to get big, but just for some reason, I feel like a lot of people just kind of like overlook them and their style. I think you're right. I mean, they were terrific. They had such, such heavy shit. They, um, got a lot of their sound, I think was, was pretty clever, um, for that time period. And I mean, when they got Brandon on drums, who again is a terrific drummer and it has been as long as I've known him. He just brought such a, um, you know, a solid approach um, and such strong blasts and such, you know, good fills and made it really, really thick and heavy. And um, uh, their guitar player, Mark, who had written all their riffs, he had written just, just terrific, sludgy, heavy, really beautiful stuff. And, and I agree, their live show was terrific. They had a lot of energy. They're, um, their style was just super heavy, and and I think, um, uh, you know, as you said, sort of uh, undervalued for what it was at the time. I mean, I think this is again two thousand three, two thousand four, when they had um, established themselves, and they were absolutely terrific. And I think, and I don't, I have no idea what happened, but I know that if um, if they wanted to, I'm sure they could have. Um, gotten much bigger, but I personally regard them as you know, one of the best things that come out of the IE. 
Yeah, same here. I, I I love when I run into other people who know about that band because it's just like this like weird special thing. It's like, dude, like for people that were like around for that time and got to catch them live and experience it in real time, it's just something that I think is awesome. And it's just cool to look back with people who were around around at, at that time. Definitely. Great live shows. Um, they were a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, so I, I found something really interesting. Um, and um, when you're talking about the, um, the early days of Suicide Silence, I I n- didn't know that you played guitar. And the fact that you're talking about you were learning to play drums when you got asked to join the the band, uh, it's like super crazy to me. Can you talk about um how you or, or even why you started to learn to play the drums? Um, I don't know. I mean, I was barely learning guitar when Josh and Brandon had come over that day to teach me Dying in Dreams songs. And it wasn't complicated um, music or anything, but it was certainly guitar and I was not very good at it. Um, You know, I think for a long time, I had always been interested in drums, but um, I didn't get the opportunity to start playing until um, I borrowed a friend's kit, a guy named Anthony. a dear friend of mine who would let me borrow his drum set. Uh, and I was living with uh, uh, my then girlfriend's stepdad, as it were, and he let me play there. I just started kind of messing around on it. And it was just before um, suicide, uh, suicide Silence had started. Um, you know, it's, 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 I think just kind of the whole, you know, you, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I think because I was such close friends with, you know, with Mitch, who then introduced me to Garza and, I knew uh, Josh Stefano from high school, and I knew of Michael Heiser from uh, um, his time in Dying with Dream, Dying in Dreams, and he also went to the same high school. Um, I don't know. I think Mitch saw that I was reliable, and he knew that I was a, you know, for the most part, a very, um, you know, a regular friend, a solid friend, and I think he valued that more than he valued uh, um, the quality of my my drumming. Um, that had to have been what it was uh, or it might've just been availability. <laughs> and I was the, the only person who um, had some skill on the, on the drum set and could actually, you know, be available for, for writing music and playing shows. I don't know, but um, yeah, I think it, you know, again, they, Chris had started writing uh, music with, uh, with Brandon Trahan um, and then they had Justin and then I think they were kind of at a loss, so brought me along and, uh, I think it was more just about right place, right time. And did you feel any pressure on like learning the drums and having to get good fast or did you just kind of progress slowly with the band? Oh God, no, I know. I felt immense pressure. I mean, um, it was exciting, incredibly exciting to be a part of something like that and, um, you know, I practiced as, as regularly as I could, certainly every day, but I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, if you get a chance to listen to not the original three song demo that, uh, that Tanner and Justin and, and then put out, but the one that came after that, that has uh, me on it. Uh, we recorded it at a, at a place called Love Juice in Riverside and the drumming on it, um, it's, uh, it's something. Um, it's quite something, uh, it's painful every once in a while, our mutual friend Gabe Ocho will play it for me, um, just as a way to, I think, torture me. Um, it's so painful and there's some very heavy stuff on that, that CD, but, um, yeah, the drumming is especially terrible. 
Um, but I, yeah, I felt immense pressure. I mean, um, early on, I mean, Mitch was incredible um, as a vocalist. He had an incredible stage presence. His voice was terrific. Chris was a great guitar player. Um, so Josh was a terrific guitar player. Josh was a better drummer than me, hands down, 10 times the drummer. But um, you know, I'd come into band practice and he'd be on the drums and he'd be killing it. And I'd be like, oh my God, I can't do that. Um, but I wasn't taking lessons. I was just listening to what I could as many different um, death metal um, albums as I could get my hands on just to try to interpret what it was I was hearing and then apply it. But I didn't get my first drum lesson until maybe a year and a half, two years into Suicide Silence by a buddy of mine named uh, Chris, who played for a terrific band called um, Drexel. And, uh, Chris was an amazing drummer. and He played at the uh, Riverside City College drum line. I mean, he was amazing. So he taught me rudiments, taught me uh, you know, my first uh, drum patterns that I started to practice. And that's what I you know, finally, that's when I finally started to develop some kind of uh, um, structure to what I was doing. But yeah, early on, it was just get behind the kid, play as hard and as fast and as loud as I could. And, you know, when Mitch had asked me to play, I told him, yeah, that's not a good idea. Um, you know, it was actually pretty irresponsible of him, but um, I think uh, he just, he thought I could uh, compensate for it by just going ape shit on stage and, you know, just being who I was, which uh, I believe was just being available <laughs> more than anything. And when you started taking drum lessons, is that because you just wanted to get like better as a drummer or did you just wanted to actually learn different techniques and actually uh, expand your skills? I just wanted to learn how to play drums. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have a clue. Um, I couldn't read music. Um, I didn't know what a drum rudiment was. I didn't understand time or tempo or anything like that. And I'm telling you, I'm not uh, exaggerating when I say that I didn't know what a blast beat was when I joined Suicide Silence. I had heard them, you know, when eventually when someone, you know, would put on cannibal corpse and they'd say oh this is a blast beat i'd say oh that's a blast beat but trying to again interpret those sounds and then uh, apply them myself on the kit yeah that was a that was a struggle but yeah i took lessons just to try to keep up and try to you know express what it was the band wanted to express uh, more than anything it was just a very simple desire to um, play drums correctly damn you definitely had me fooled because if you didn't tell me um, you were such a beginner um, when you started Suicide Silence, I would not have believed you because uh, from the outside looking in, um, I thought, you know, it sounded fine to me. It sounded cool. Didn't sound like you were new to drumming. Well, Jamie, that's very sweet of you. <laughs> I think because they hid me in the back. Okay. Um, and I, I think most everybody had their eyes on Mitch. I was able to just kind of <laughs> scoot by for a while. Maybe that's what it was. Who knows? But um, I appreciate you um, saying that. Okay. And um, you talked about that demo that you, you played on um, earlier. Were you talking about the 2004 demo? That sounds about right. Yeah, I think it was uh, that year. Um, I think we printed like 50 of them or 75, something like that. And the artwork was just a really brutal like suicide scene um i think we had four or five tracks on it 
the uh, the original rendering of Distorted Thought of Addiction is on there. Stand Strong is on there. And I think Destruction of a Statue is on there. And then there's a, another song we used to play early on called Till the Bubble Stop, which looking back, the riffs on that are actually quite heavy. And that's all credit to, to Chris for, for writing some really um, uh, some really heavy stuff back then. And yeah, was that the one with with the Family Guy samples? I think we're talking about the same one. Yeah, there was a couple of them. I think it starts with um, with Peter Griffin laughing, and there might be one or two throughout the CD, but I can't recall if we used um, that many samples. But it definitely had Family Guy samples on it. Yeah, and and I I know there was like a UK version released. Ooh, I don't know. That sounds fancy. I wouldn't be surprised if we we did something like that. Okay. Um, but I, I feel like, um, or I don't feel like I know like, the reason why I found out, um, about suicide silence. And this is back in like, um, my space days, my, uh, sister, I, I have an older sister. She, uh, she was like, Hey, like you should check out this band. Like, I know it's not really your style, but I feel like, um, you'd be into them. Cause at the time I'm like, you know, fresh into hardcore and like, you know, just trying to learn everything I can about hardcore. And she kind of threw me a curveball. She was like, Hey, check this out. You should be into it. Um, you know, it, it's like a little more on the metal side, but it has breakdowns and it's, um, pretty cool. And I was like, all right, like I'm down to check it out because I'm, I'm always open like when it comes to music. So she showed me Suicide Silence and I was like, wow, this is actually pretty cool. And I remember being like super into uh, you guys and I can't remember what year it was, but there was this show and I was so mad that I couldn't go because I had work and I was like young and wanted to be a good employee. So I showed up to my shift, but it was a show in Redlands and all my friends were going to it. And the only bands I remember on the bill was death star and suicide silence. And I remember telling my friends, I'm like, yo, you guys got to get there early. Make sure to check out this band suicide silence. They're super sick. Um, they're like a little different from all the other bands on the bill, but just trust me, like this band is awesome. And all my friends, uh, at the time were like, you know, super, uh, hardcore dudes and didn't want to, um, you know, admit that they liked other music except for this one guy that I knew he came back and was like, dude, thanks for that recommendation. Like that band was fucking awesome. And I just remember him being so stoked and I, and I remember I was really jealous. I was like, damn it. Like I'm stoked you got to see them, but like, I can't wait till the day that I get to see that band because back then it was just like, so, it was just so different for me to be into like a band like suicide silence. That's fun. I it, it's 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 funny you say that it was a show in Redlands, and I'm sure yeah. If we, whenever we did play there, I'm sure Death Start was on it, um, or we were on their show, I should say. Um, and you, know, you bring up hardcore, and you know everybody in the band for the most part were we were just you know um, hardcore kids. Uh, my favorite description um, I've ever heard or read of Suicide Silence came out, um, I should say, was uh, um, I recognized it or I saw it, I observed it in like 2004-ish. Do you remember a, um, a message board called notpop.com? I do. Wasn't that ran by Josh Highland, or he had like a hand in it? It sure was. Okay. You got it, yep. Yep. And uh, when... Somebody had posted about us on there. Um, I think it was talking about our EP, the um, the one the, the one that I had done, or maybe they had posted the the three three track demo. I don't remember, but um, somebody had written it. Sounds like hardcore kids trying to play metal and doing a shitty job. 
And I took that and I was just like, that's it. I'm like, I love it. And I was just a, a badge of honor. You know, they understood us. Um, but, but really it's, it, you know, it's, it's not far off from where I think we were self-assessing ourselves because we were just into heavy stuff. We were into hardcore, we went to hardcore shows, but there were things about metal, especially death metal that, um, we were all very attracted to. And we, we enjoyed a lot of, you know, death metal bands, um, yeah, some of our our biggest influences were like um, Wormed and um, Dripping and Circle of Dead Children. These just crazy metal bands that were just stupid heavy and stupid fast, you know. Um, or even the like Skinless, Dying Fetus, uh, Disgorge, Aborted stuff like that. Like you know, a lot of blast beats, a lot of heavy breakdowns. Um, you ever heard of the band uh, Eternal Suffering? Uh, I'm not familiar check them out i mean we would listen to them religiously and just want to um you know uh duplicate what it was they were doing we were just so turned on by how heavy they were and how fast they were and how they you know really seemed to blend uh you know metal and and, and like breakdown-esque um the styles of music um you know decapitated suffocate those are other really big bands that we listen to um a lot of but uh yeah i think um playing that kind of music and the the hardcore scenes we didn't ever get on like metal shows or anything we typically played with like hardcore scene bands um and again i think it comes back to you know just who we knew like we weren't friends with like metal bands or metal promoters uh, at the time it was simply uh um, trying to find shows in the hardcore scene and just to be clear, uh, how many records did you record with the band? I did, I think, four recordings. I did the one uh, original EP demo thing. Well, not the original, but the, the one I referred to earlier. Um, then we just did a little single demo, which is where we wrote and recorded um, a song called uh, Bludgeon to Death. Mm-hmm. And then we did the um, the EP which had the four studio tracks plus the live version of um, Destruction of a Statue. And then the last thing I recorded was just a one track, um, what you call it, maybe it was like something we handed out, I'm not sure if it went anywhere, but it was called A Dead Current, which was just one song. But I recall those are the only things I recorded with them. Okay, dang. Yeah, it's such a trip to think back. Um, there was, and I, I don't remember the year, but uh, the, and I, I'm curious if you remember, there was a, a city um, called Indio, California. I knew this guy. His name was, I, I think it was, God, did Patrick book that show? Or maybe it was my buddy Steve Kippel. I don't know. Somebody booked a show in Indio and Suicide Silence played it. And it was at this pizza place that was, um, the building was shaped like a castle. I don't know if you ever remember coming out to Indio for that show. Well, Jamie, I remember that show quite well. Um, Oh, really? (laughs) And I do. Well, my wife and I lived in the desert for about five years from 2008 to 2013. And I remember driving. Yeah, I remember driving down Highway 111 and driving right past that place and saying, oh, my God, that's the place we played at with. I think Oblige played and um, I don't know who else played that show, but I'm pretty sure Oblige played it. Um, But yeah, it was a great night. It was uh, upstairs, as I recall. Yes. and uh, it was just a really cool spot. It was on our way to Arizona to play. I don't know where in Arizona, but uh, 
yeah, it was a fun place. It was nice to to grab a show on our way out of town. So it was a great show. Yeah, I, I think the, like in the history of that building, there's only like um, off the top of my head, there's only like I think like three three shows that I can remember that happened there. Like um, there's like this crazy big show like back in the day. Um, I remember this guy, his name was Patrick Blake. He booked this like crazy show. I don't even know how he convinced the bands to come out, but it was like bands like um, One Mark, One Mission, Adora, mm-hmm. Bloodline Calligraphy came out, uh, Suffocate, Hoods, um, just like that crazy show. Then my buddy Steve Kippel, um, Steve Kippel, excuse me, he booked like a day to remember like way back in the day. It was like a day to remember Blessed by a Broken Heart, Amna Kara and some other bands. And then there was a down to nothing cast aside blacklisted show there. And then that suicide silence show. Those are like the only like awesome shows that I remember that happened there. I love it. And those, those like kinds of shows, those venues were so much fun. I mean, they're not technically a venue, but you know, there's some random bingo hall. Yeah. And I, I dig those. And I remember, you know, a few years ago, maybe it was God knows when it was. There were several years ago. Someone had asked me about being in suicide silence, and they had said, you know, what was it like, you know, playing in front of, you know, all kinds of people, thousands of people, and and you know, concert halls. And I'm like, no, no, I, I played in kitchens. Like I played, <laughs> um, I played in backyards. I didn't. That all came after me. Um, and I mean it. Like there was a place, our our first show in uh, San Francisco was at a place called the Balazzo Gallery, and we literally played in the kitchen. It was a converted uh, restaurant into a um, art gallery, and we literally played in the kitchen with a band called uh, Conducting from the Grave. And I love that stuff. I love those those off the wall places that we play. And we all did. I think everybody um, got a big kick out of playing random places because we just wanted to play period. So anybody who would take us, we would say, yes, we never said no ever. Yeah. And I honestly feel like that doesn't happen as much these days. Um, like, random shows and like the most random spots because i remember like in the early mid 2000s like we were showing up to like random spots and and wondering if the show was actually happening just because it, it didn't seem like like a legit spot to have a show but you know things would like pop off and it'd be just so interesting and then like we would never return the show would like you know happen in another spot in the city and that's, uh, I guess that's sad. I wish that that would happen, you know, because those are sometimes the, the most memorable shows and, and they're so very, um, oh God, they're just so free, you know, and, uh, and I don't mean they're free as in free of charge, but just, they're just so open and there's just such a nice feeling. Um, uh, my God, I remember one time we were going to play a show in Watt. Um, in somebody's backyard and, and that show we were so very excited about but it got shut down i can't remember why um but again I, we anywhere that we could get something booked um you know la um san diego we played up i think one of the shows on our job for a cowboy tour was in a backyard in san diego and it was a blast and we played there because the venue um, we were supposed to play at got shut down or it was double booked or something but uh, we ended up playing in somebody's backyard and it was an absolute blast they bought <laughs> they bought pizzas and i just played in their backyard next to their uh, pool and it was just too much fun yeah, it's crazy out here, uh, or not out here, but um, when I go back home and uh, talk to kids um, who are, you know, getting into that kind of music and them, like, being surprised that Suicide Silence played in Indio, because, like, it, 
back then like it just um it's like you know a whole different world like I, I i don't even know anybody um from back then that still even goes to shows so when i talk to these younger kids and they get so freaked out and surprised and confused like why the hell would suicide silence come through india like of all places it's it's pretty funny it is and i suppose the simplest answer is that you know in between southern california and arizona is bound to be something and you know the coachella valley is uh, as good a place as any to play a show i, I i'm actually surprised um you talking about you lived out here um do you mind sharing like what part of the desert you lived in oh not at all we lived in palm desert um, for about five years um, we moved out there when i became a head chef at a restaurant um, had an apartment for about a year then we bought our first house out there mm-hmm. um it was lovely. Absolutely lovely. It took some getting used to, um, you know, the weather can be quite unforgiving at times, but oh. you get used to it. And my goodness, you enjoy the, um, relaxed nature of the area. And, um, you know, now my wife and I, I can't speak for my wife, but, um, I remember it fondly and, and I love going out there, um, which isn't very frequent, but when we do get to go back, it is, is always fun. Yeah, uh, my parents still live in the desert, and I always tell everybody, like, the summers are brutal, but, like, fall and winter out there, I I think is amazing. Oh, no question. Um, You can understand why the snowbirds flock there and stick around. Um, They're all there now, but, um, yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. You know, the view is wonderful. The weather is fantastic. Um, A nice place to retire, so I understand um, why so many people in their older years, um, you know, move out to the desert or spend half the time there. Yeah. It, it's still a trip because I all um, visit, uh, and I'm staying in orange County currently and it's not that far. It's probably about like, you know, two hours difference from orange County to the Coachella Valley. But like, the city doesn't like it's not as active as like Orange County. Like I, I obviously there's less people, but it, I, I I trip out when like I'll um, be driving. And it's like like nine o'clock and the streets you know aren't you know packed full of people trying to get places. Like I can just enjoy driving and not have to worry about nasty traffic. No kidding! Oh my god, that was quite a culture shock for us when we moved back to. Um, uh, Riverside Corona area was just getting used to the traffic again. Um, that is something I do miss um, immensely is the lack of traffic uh, in the desert. So back then when I would uh, look at suicide silence, obviously um, Mitch, amazing front man, but past that I would look at you and I, I always thought you were an interesting character because um, you'd always uh, play with this mask on and it, at the time like I didn't know anybody in the band or anybody connected to you guys and I just uh, assumed that you just wore it um, because it looked cool um, so I, I wanted to know like what was like the origins of the mask like where you got it and why you wore it when you performed Sure. Well, the mask actually belongs to my wife's brother, Dominic. Um, I got it from him or she got it from him and I got it from her. Um, you know, the reason I started wearing the mask, um, let's see, I showed up when I first met Chris 
and uh, Mitch told him, hey, Josh is going to play drums. And Chris said, your face, this is horrible. Not metal, <laughs> ugly, fat, chubby, started poking me. Um, and he said, we can't do this. Somebody get some paper towels. And I tried wrapping paper towels around my face, and that didn't work. So my wife said, look at this mask. It'll cover your face. Um, no, in all honesty, um, the... Uh, um, the reason I wore the mask is because I made really goofy faces. And I think I probably still do when I play drums. Um, really bizarre faces. I'll, I'll send you a video if I can find it that has me practicing that uh, uh, my wife wanted to take. Um, at the time, she was my girlfriend, and she took a video of me practicing. And just to you know, kind of uh, document why it was that I covered um, that particular part of my body. Um, and uh, I think just maybe some of it made it may have been a general sense of self-consciousness. Um, you know, maybe um, I did deal with anxiety and still deal with anxiety. So that may have been a way to kind of help uh, uh, assuage that a little bit. I'm not sure. Um, and it just kind of stuck. You know, my first show, I wore it because it a... Uh, uh, what was it? It was a skate rink called Skateland in Whittier. That was my first show with them, and I had it on then. And um, and everybody was just kind of like, "Okay, that's our thing." But it you know wasn't anything beyond um, again just trying to um, I don't know, just kind of uh, hide the funny faces I was making, and, and maybe just uh, help me out with my anxiety. But that was really it. We weren't <laughs> we weren't trying to be Slipknot or anything or Mushroom Head, obviously, but. I do understand that it must have looked kind of weird with, uh, you know, the other four guys in the band, um, you know, bearing their faces and being normal and then seeing me in the back wearing that must have been a little goofy, but you know, it was just, just something, uh, just something we did. Yeah. I, I thought it was awesome. So I, I definitely, uh, think that it was a cool look. Um, but at any point, um, like your vision wearing that mask. Cause I'm now that I know that you were, um, you know, learning to play the drums in the early days, like did wearing that mask make it harder playing the drums or, uh, did it just not like really impair like your peripheral vision at all? Uh, not really. I don't recall. Um, not especially. Um, I, I do recall thinking that, wow, if I suck, at least nobody can hit me afterwards because they won't recognize me. Um, but uh, vision never really was impaired. Um, I could see pretty good and make, could make eye contact with everybody when transitioning from song to song. Um, one thing I'll share with you, which is just too gross for words, but whatever. Um, when I would sweat in that thing, it would collect in the chin area and I would have to drain it every other song. Um, and it just poured into my lap. Absolutely horrid. And you can imagine some of the places we played were incredibly hot, no air conditioning. Um, you know, uh, beyond that, that was the one, I think, uh, um, you know, funny aspect of wearing the mask. But beyond that, it wasn't an hindrance. It uh, wasn't a hindrance to, to anything about my playing. My, my playing was bad no matter what. So I just had to keep practicing and uh, and uh, hope to get better. But the mask really didn't uh, play into that. And did you ever play any shows without the mask? I never played a show without the mask. I played one show with a different mask. Um, and this was in Tustin. Was it a, was it a skate shop? I don't recall the name of it. 
Um, it was right off uh, Tustin Avenue. Um, I would play with a band called, ooh, I think it was Hurry Up and Kill Yourself. <laughs> I'm enjoying the fact that I can remember that. Okay. Um, and I played and I played in a different mask that my wife, um, again, then girlfriend, had fashioned for me. It was really cool looking. Um, you know, she molded it out of my head and it was, had more of a skull look to it. And I don't recall why we were testing a new mask, but, you know, we gave it a shot. I tried it and... It just didn't feel right. So I went back to the other one for the next show. Interesting. Did you, um, cause obviously the mask was like, you know, was important. Uh, was there ever a show where you, you forgot to bring the mask and you had to like, you know, uh, rush to go home and get it or were you ever in a situation like that? I don't think so. I think I was always pretty good about uh, bringing it. Um, I don't recall ever forgetting it. Um, which is something, you know, you'd, you'd think you'd forget something. And I've, I have forgotten many things, um, you know, on trips and, and before playing shows. But that one item, uh, to my recollection, was never left behind. Okay. That's awesome. And I, I remember, like, whenever I'd go and see you guys, I, I would always have to check and see if you're wearing the mask. Um, because for me, that's something I look forward to. Because, like, oh, there's, like, this uh, creepy dude wearing a mask. Like, I, I wonder if he's going to be wearing it tonight. And, yeah, sure enough, every time I saw you guys, you were always wearing that thing. It, it became somewhat of a gimmick, um, that's for sure. And, and here's the wild part about it is that eventually people started to make make up stories about why um, I uh, adorned it, um, especially as MySpace was becoming bigger and that first music video we did um, um, started to take off. More and more people started to share stories about why the drummer wears a mask. And I remember um, being in um, uh, West Virginia at a show. We were on tour out there with um, Dead to Fall and from a second, from a second story window. Um, and, and a couple of the bands, I can't recall the names, but um, a guy came up to me after we were done playing. I'd taken off my mask and, you know, drained the sweat off and then hid it away from, from, from view. And the guy came up to me and he's like, oh, my God, like your face, you're not all burned. And I said, <laughs> what? And he says, well, I just I, I read somewhere that you were you know, a victim of a, of a horrible burn accident. Um. At the time, I, I, I couldn't think of a sarcastic, you know, comeback to that. I just said, no, man, I'm good. Like, this is as ugly as I'll ever be. And, and he gave me a hug, and he's like, I'm so glad to hear that. <laughs> but And I'd heard that story many times about, you know, being a burn victim or being disfigured, um, you know. And uh, so I started to play with that a little bit. But, um, yeah, I told somebody else who came up to me at a show in LA, they were like, Oh my God, like, like, you don't have the scars. I heard you had gnarly scars. And I said, Oh, that was the guy before me, you know, and make up stories about that. I was such a dick just making stuff up, but it was all in good fun. I don't think anybody, uh, you know, would take offense to it now. Yeah. I, I saw, uh, it was like an old, like promo pick of you guys. And like you put, you had your hand over your face um did you ever oh yeah yeah did you ever take like promo pics and actually show your face or did you always just try to keep it hidden no it was always hidden we always had the map for promo pics um i think the one you're referring to at least the one i recall was um we were in san francisco and somebody had just snapped a picture and i wasn't you know promo shot ready so i just put my hand over my face and i was like aha you will not 
Um, but um, yeah, every other shot we did or music video, we made sure that um, that I had it with me. Because um, at some point, um, I don't recall who pointed this out, um, they reminded me to wear it. Because if I didn't, then people would start to wonder, well, who the hell is that <laughs> chubby face guy, you know? Yeah, and I feel like it, it would be hard to explain to people, like, hey, like, I'm the drummer. Because people would probably be like, no, you're not. He wears a mask, and, like, you're just making that up. Totally. Um, and at some point, and, and my, my wife recently uh, pointed this out, it didn't it didn't really keep me from being recognized. We used to get recognized at um, RCC or at um, Disneyland. We'd have kids come up to me and, and want to say what's up and talk about the band. Um you know, I think my height probably had something to do with that because I'm six six. Um, so if you saw me at a show, mask height, you know, it, it creates. Um, I suppose it uh, it makes for memorable characteristics. You know, that's crazy because I thinking back, like I don't remember. Um, you know, looking at you and thinking you were like a tall guy, but every time I saw you, you were sitting. So, um, hearing you say how tall you are is pretty crazy. Aha, you see, that's the other trick. You know, I was always sitting, so you never knew how tall I was until I stood up. Um, but yeah, um, the mask, um, you know, it was just, a, just kind of a fun detail that uh, turned into, I guess, uh, uh, over time, just kind of a kitschy thing to do. Um, a bit of a gimmick, but at first it was just totally um, uh, circumstance. It was uh, in no way um, were we conscious of what we were doing. Just was a was a thing. I feel like that could have been like a really cool like um, piece of merch. You guys uh, start selling the mask. Oh God, could you imagine? Oh my God, that'd be funny. I've had people try to buy it off me, but that's uh, one thing that's that's going to stick with me. And as I mentioned, it's not even mine. It's my wife's uh, my wife's brother's. Um, at any point, he could come to collect on that. So I won't let him. It's, it's too dear to me now. Yeah, he's gonna be like, hey, um, I, I need to use that for a Halloween costume. Can I have it back? Well, funny you mention Halloween costume because for the last um, decade or so, my wife has used that mask in Halloween decorations at my house at our house. Um, you know, she'd build a scarecrow, put them on there, or um, she has a couple of dummies that she's built. She'd use them on there. Um, so yeah, the mask either just, I think for the past couple of years, has just sat in one of my drum bags and just, you know, just sits there. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely got its fair share of use, uh, come Halloween time over the years. And is that, those are for like indoor decorations, right? Oh no, she puts them outside. Uh, she is practically welcoming the theft of that mask. Um, that is insane. I would, I'd be so paranoid. Like something with like that much history, just sitting outside all day, and well, and probably you know, people in your neighborhood or uh, most people just wouldn't even like you know look twice at it. But just knowing that it's just out there, like up for grabs, is crazy. Yeah, I, I think it's. You know, for the most part, we're not too possessive. And, you know, though, I think most of us, most people are materialistic. If, if we were to lose it, it'd be sad. But, you know, the memories are here and and that's uh, essentially all that matters. But, um, yeah, I keep it uh, inside now. And when it does go up as a decoration, it'll probably just be indoors. Okay, that's cool. Um, I feel like I... 
whenever I would see Suicide Silence at Showcase, I feel like you guys were one of those bands that was able to make the venue feel bigger than it actually was just by the way you guys sounded live and the performance you guys would put on. And it was always like a trip to me. I was like, man, cause like for me being like, um, for, cause I was like a teenager back then seeing you guys at showcase, it was, uh, just like more, just one of those weird things to me. I was like, man, like th- these shows f- like feel special. And like back then I, like, I couldn't really put my finger on it. Um, because I, I didn't really understand like how big the band was going to get and like you know especially with uh, being able to go to showcase i didn't um, really realize at the time like how special that venue was until i was gone no kidding um i don't think any of us did um yeah the showcase uh one of the most special places to so many people myself included um and I've said to others that we, we really were spoiled having that venue um, in Corona um, and having such special people running it. Um, you saw it, the owner, Joe, um, you got Ron, Randy, everybody, such good people, so very sweet, so very kind. Um, but also, um, I don't know, there's just something really gritty about them and, and, and solid and you know, especially Joe, like he was such a tough-minded person and nothing seemed to scare him um, but we were fortunate to be booked there um, early on and you can you can thank Gabe Ochoa um, of Bound in Blood fame for uh, for doing that uh, he convinced Joe that we needed to be booked there on hardcore shows and not metal shows and, and Joe knew who we who we were especially Mitch Mitch had been going there for so long but you know, Joe would tell Gabe, no, no, I'm not going to book them. They're a metal band. And he was like, no, like you need to put them on hardcore bills. And, and sure enough, he, he started to book us and we did well. Um, we loved playing there. I mean, it was an absolute blast every time we played there. Um, you know, and, and because we were so very fortunate in the numbers of friends that we had, I think it might have <laughs> made it seem as though more people were into us than really were. You know, and, and the same could be said for a lot of different bands in the area. You know, we all kind of supported each other. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, when Jerry Club, the uh, uh, the first official manager of our band, um, we had an unofficial manager, uh, a guy named Nick, a terrific guy who recorded the first EP. Um, he had a, a clothing line called Bygone Industries. I'm not sure if you remember those or remember seeing those. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I feel like anybody around that time kind of knew what Bygone was. Yeah. So Nick is such a sweet guy. And, and Nick was so very helpful and absolutely instrumental in, in getting us um, getting us going. He recorded the, um, the EP. Um, uh, and uh, um, where was I going with that? But... Uh, are you talking about the, oh, the first manager? Oh, yeah, there you go, Max. Thank you. Um, so after Nick was kind of um, the de facto manager for us, we met Jerry Club at Showcase. We had played a show. If I recall correctly, I hope I'm remembering this right, but we had played with Acacia Strain. It was one of their first times uh, in the area. Um, and their first album, and, and they, they were just an absolute force. So freaking heavy and so good. Um, we were fortunate to be on that on that uh, that lineup with them, and uh, they were on 
prosthetic at the time. They might still be, I don't know, but uh, Jerry had, uh, was working for prosthetic at the time. And uh, so he was at the showcase for them and he saw us and he was all about us. He was totally um, uh, taken by our live show. And he continued to uh, remind us that our live show is really where it's at. And, and though he, he thought we sounded good on CD, he really um, he thought that when people saw us, there would be a much uh, more impactful statement made. Um, and I think that was the result of us just having a lot of fun. Um, we practiced our live show with a lot of energy. Um, we tried to bring it every time. And it really was just, I think, the expression of how much we loved what we were doing. Um, and all of us. I mean, you look at some of the early footage. And to this day, I'm sure you can see Chris and Mark, um, you know, going ape shit on stage. We all really enjoy heavy music. We love metal. We love hardcore. We love breakdowns. And I think that energy, um, you know, as you said, um, is noticeable. And that uh, that creates attraction. But um, yeah, Jerry had really liked us and he believed in us. And he had to sit down with his boss at Prosthetic. Um, and he was uh, mulling over the idea of signing us. We actually met, we had dinner at, uh, at an island right by Chris's house down in Magnolia. And uh, he talked to us, asked about our our thoughts, our plans. Um, it didn't work out with Prosthetic, but um, Jerry actually left Prosthetic to come and manage us full time. And he started doing all kinds of stuff. He, he you know, put all this energy and uh, uh, and time into the MySpace. He started making those music videos for us, starting with Destruction of a Statue. He put that out there. Um, he made sure that the, uh, the EP was, what'd you call it, an enhanced CD that had a music video on it. Um, you know, he knew all the right buttons to push, and then he started getting us booked on more and more shows, more and more tours, and you know, it all started a showcase when he saw us play with uh, the Acacia String. And like when you guys started the band, and um, in your mind, um, did you guys ever want it to get to the point where you where you guys were going to be, you know, signed, full time band touring? Is that what you guys wanted from the beginning, or did it just kind of happen to go there, and you guys were willing to take it that far? You know, I, I can't speak for the other guys. Um, I will certainly say that when we started getting interest from people like Prosthetic, um, everybody seemed excited. Um, nobody was bummed out or, you know, like, hey, Prosthetic's looking at us and we were like, oh, that sucks. No, nobody nobody seemed bummed by that, you know, prospect. So, uh, but when we started, I don't think it was anything more than, um, this is exciting. And again, I didn't start Suicide Silence, but when I joined, it was simply about having fun um, and, and really just expressing our love for music. And, you know, um, anybody who's played a show knows that it's just an absolute blast. Um, it really is a lot of fun uh, playing live music and being a part of something like that. Um, but um, as it did become more serious, I think, then uh, um, again, not speaking for anybody else, but it did seem like that was what everybody wanted. Um, that they wanted it to become something that could uh, uh, really take on a full-time role in everybody's lives. Okay. Okay. Um, there was a venue in um, Rialto. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. And I was curious if you guys ever played there. Um, I think that after me, they played there. <clears throat> I don't recall ever playing in Rialto and I might be totally wrong. We played so many different places mm -hmm. in, in Southern California, but personally I don't recall it. Okay. Interesting. Man. Well, 
I'm like drawing a blank, but it was, it was like this random venue. And I, I forget the guy's name who had booked shows there, but like whenever he would book a show, it was always like a fest. He'd always put like 10 bands on and I'd be like, why are there so many bands on this show? <laughs> yeah, that happens. And something that just popped into my head to, to kind of illustrate further how you know we uh, perceived ourselves and perceived the the band itself was you know when we started putting family guy samples into the music and playing that live it, it just to me it just showed that we didn't take ourselves too seriously we took music seriously don't get me wrong mm-hmm. and we wanted to write good music but we also were just having a lot of fun um and you know we we I think that just playing those silly samples just made it made the atmosphere a little bit more fun, and it, I think it it demonstrates now that um, at least for a time that that's all it was about was just playing shows and, and having a good time. Yeah, and and I, I feel like you guys obviously did it right because at the time I couldn't think of any other band um, that was playing that style of music that stuck out to so many people that. I knew that like, you know, weren't like legit, like, you know, people into metal. Like I was surrounded myself with you know people who are into hardcore, but the fact that you guys were able to cross over, I, I thought was um, super awesome and definitely like, you know, showed that um, you guys were special back then. Yeah. And as you mentioned, or we talked about um, you know, earlier, the, the, the final burden was doing that before we did. Um, there are a couple other bands locally that were doing that kind of thing. And, and nationally, you know, you had bands, uh, um, you know, like Deadwater Drowning or um, my God, I mean, like Archangel who were kind of molding those two you know, those styles together. Um, you know, I think the, the ultimate, you know, the band that I still regard as my favorite band, def- definitely like up there, um, is Blood Has Been Shed. Um, we listened to them absolutely religiously. Um, and it wasn't necessarily like we were going for that sound, especially, you know, it just, we knew that it turned us on because they were so freaking heavy. They had so many good transitions. Their breakdowns were absolutely ridiculous. Howard Jones is one of the greatest metal, you know, heavy singers of all time. Um, so there were bands out there. Um, and it's funny, I think early on we were, you know, maybe struggling somewhat to develop an identity for our songwriting. Um, which I feel didn't get kicked into high gear until we got Rick and Mike from a band called Torn Within, which is another example of a local band that um, really undervalued, not very well known. Um, they had uh, started right around the same time we did, either right before or right after, I don't know. Um, but they were based out of like Myriad of Temecula, Elsinore. Um, and they were just absolutely amazing. Torn Within was so heavy. Their songs are so well-written. Um, if you haven't heard them, you need to look them up, um, or I'll try to send you uh, what I have. I'll, I'll, I'll ask Gabe to send you what I have, what he has of Torn Within, but um, they were amazing. I remember they put out an EP um, around the time that we did. It was maybe 2005, 2004, I don't know, somewhere around there. It was a five-track EP, and Chris um, had gone to listen to it in his room, and uh, Mitch and I were waiting for him in the band room and, and Chris had listened to the EP and he walked into the band room and just said, I quit because it was just so 
good. I mean, Torn Within was so very good. It was heavy as hell, well-written. It was catchy. It was lovely. Point is, is when Torn Within broke up, we then poached um, Rick, the guitar player, and Mike Botkins, the bass player, after um, our guy Mike Olheiser and, um, and little Josh had left. Um, and Rick and I clicked um, very quickly. Um, Rick is such a sweet person. He's such a he's a brilliant, brilliant musician. I mean, to this day, that's what he does for a living, as far as I, as far as I know. Um, and he and I wrote a good amount of the EP together. We wrote "Ending in the Beginning" together, "Swarm," um, about a plane crash. Most of that he and I wrote together. Um, and as we were. I think learning more about ourselves and bringing on Rick and Mike, who brought a whole nother flavor to the band. Um, that's another element that made me want to step up my drumming because they were such good musicians. Um, Rick was terrific. Mike was terrific. And they were tightening everything up. So I delved more into, again, getting my stuff as solid as possible. I think, um, I can't recall who wrote Bludgeon to Death, whether it was me and Rick or me and Chris, but definitely a mix in there. But that recording, I felt much better about. It was a little bit more solid and my tempo was getting better. But as we were developing a style and trying to understand who we wanted to be, you had bands coming out back then like Beneath the Massacre and The Faceless and Ion Dissonance and, um, my God, Animosity and all these amazing bands who had such technical prowess they were so strong when it came to their technicality and the way that they wrote music and i knew immediately hearing bands like that i, I can't do that i certainly can't do it right now i mean have you heard the drummer from my indigenous feet it's ridiculous they're just he's so amazing he's so technical he's so strong um so i think we had to come to terms with what our capabilities were certainly for me anyway i mean i, I definitely was not the drummer that I think they wanted. Um, but um, yeah, bands like Job for a Cowboy, or we started listening to uh, Necrophagus a lot, just these incredible drummers, incredible uh, musicians. And I don't think maybe eventually we wanted to get there, but for the time being, we were more heavily influenced by sort of a simplified uh, version of music, not, not to undervalue the quality of music being played by like bands like the Red Chord, or premonitions of war, uh, God, even like Shattered Realm, which is obviously very, very simplified. It's much more hardcore than anything. But just that heavy, just that's what we want to emphasize is heavy more than anything. Like be, beyond technicality or trying to be extreme metal or tech metal, we just want to write heavy music and um, and have fun. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, that's what set us on you know, really focusing on the, the live show is that we were about playing heavy music, having fun, you know, making kind of a joke of it by playing these silly samples, but, um, but really trying to emphasize our live show and bringing as much energy as possible. And I think for a while that did carry the band, but eventually, um, you know, when I left and I got Alex, I mean, they, they traded up for a drummer a hundred times better than me. Alex is a terrific drummer and just an overall great musician. He's a great guitar player. Um, and that's when I think they were able to step up their, their game and start to write much more um, uh, technically driven music. So you briefly mentioned um, you leaving the band uh, and I, Back then, I wasn't like super, you know, savvy with social media. I didn't really know like a whole lot what was going on. But I remember I went to go see Suicide Silence and 
you weren't there and I was always curious like what happened to you and so um can you talk about um your departure from the band yeah totally um I think uh it was said pretty well uh on lamb goat where it just said suicide silence and uh, their drummer parted ways that's really the the, the general broadest um, and best way to put it um I think we just had uh, a separation of values um um, the band had just booked its first um, overseas tour. Uh, there was a tour of the UK. I can't recall who it was with, but it was about a month long. Um, you know, and I think that was kind of getting to a point for me where I, as you, you kind of spoke about earlier, like what, what were you guys, what were your goals? What were your objectives in the band? And I think having booked that tour, I realized, you know, okay, I need to come to terms with what this is and whether or not I'm officially about this, you know, um, and it was challenging. Um, you know, I made it challenging uh, on myself and I think I made it challenging on the guys because I was in indecisive about what I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to commit to being, uh, you know, a good uh, boyfriend. I wanted to, to stay home and see my girlfriend regularly, but you know, my goodness, who in their early twenties wouldn't want to be in a full-time touring band, you know? Um, so it was a, you know, a competition of values for me. Um, and, uh, you know, I had to make a, a tough decision. And I think that, uh, you know, all the guys in the band knew what was going to happen. They could see it, that it was just going to become too hard for me. Um, so we just uh, went our separate ways. Off they went. Um, and again, I think it was good for everybody because I ended up realizing about myself over the years that I'm much more of a homebody. Um, you know, traveling is not for me. I really don't like to travel at all. Um, and I really like, you know, just being close to those that I relate to, you know, so my, my wife of, you know, going on 13 years, we've been together for 18 years now since we were 16. Um, and, uh, that's what I value in life is being close to those I love the most and being with them regularly. And I think the band understood that what they craved was being on the road, writing music, being in a full-time band. And, um, you know, it was just an understanding of that dynamic and, uh, you know, that's what led to us uh, splitting up. But I think, as I said, worked out best for everybody. And obviously that decision was tough to make because suicide silence, I can imagine at that time occupied most of your life, but when it was coming to an end, did you have a plan? Like, I don't know if you had a, like a job at the time where you, or were you going to school or was, um, suicide silence like your, your main focus. And did you just kind of have to figure it out? Um, once you guys went your separate ways. Well, it was all of the above. I was working full time. I was going to school just about full time. I had suicide silence as much as I could. And then the remainder of my life was dedicated to being a very bad boyfriend. Um, I would get home from, uh, you know, after work, after band practice, and I would just fall asleep at my girlfriend's house, you know. Um, it was tough. It was a really, really busy life for about three years there. Um, and I had no plan. I mean, I didn't know that um, the uh, the last show I did with them, which was at California Metal Fest, um, I think it was the first ever California Metal Fest. That was my last show with them. But I didn't know it at the time because we didn't have the discussion um, about going our separate ways until after. Um, but, 
you know, I didn't have anything to fall back on. And, and thinking back, this may have played into it a little bit, but because I had very little to fall back on, you know, my, my mom lived up in um, the Bay Area at the time, and she still does. My dad lived, I don't know where at the time. He's lived in a million different places. It was really just me down here, and I had to rely on myself. I had, um, you know, very little in the bank, very little support um, when I needed it. So I knew that if the band failed, I'd be starting from scratch, and I would be really screwed. So I think that uh, influenced the fact that I was a little gun-shy to just leave home and say, okay, let's do this. Um, I wasn't as ready as the rest of the guys. And they have their, their reasons for why or why not they wanted to pursue that particular, um, you know, lifestyle, that particular career. But I had no plan um, in terms of being in school. I was just going to RCC and I got my, my two associate's degrees, but uh, uh, I'm still working on my bachelor's now, knowing more about myself now and what I want to do um, with my life. But back then, I had no idea. I just knew that I had to have a full-time job and I just wasn't willing to take that risk to be away from it for so long to where I'm literally, you know, having to ask for money or not knowing where I'm going to sleep or what I'm going to eat. Um, uh, but for the rest of the guys, I think just to their credit, they were, they were brave and, um, and they knew what they wanted and they were, you know, they felt that they were um, in a position to where they could take on that kind of lifestyle. But, but it was hard. It was really hard because again, you know, as a young boy growing up and, and, first getting introduced to something like, you know, corn or, uh, you know, or Deftones and seeing them live and thinking, holy shit, that's what I want to do. Like, oh my God, like I want to play live music. I love heavy music. That's what I want to do. And having that right there, um, like really literally being within your grasp um, and then saying no to it, it was incredibly hard. Um, one of the most challenging um, I should say, uh, life-changing moments of my life. And it put things in perspective. And I hope that it's helped me grow over time. And I hope that it's helped me develop um, as a human being. And it's, uh, um, it's made me better for it. Um, but I suppose time will tell. And after Suicide Silence, did you ever have any interest in playing in any other bands? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, I wrote some metal. Um, actually, the first thing I did was go get lessons. <laughs> um, now that I had the time uh, uh, and the opportunity to actually learn how to play the drums after Suicide Silence, I went to I was at Guitar Center in Rancho Cucamonga. And I remember speaking to the guy in the drum um, uh, department. And I asked him if he knew somebody, and uh, he told me, dude, go see this guy. And I linked up with a guy named Gary Stanionis, um, who to this day is my drum mentor. Um, incredible person, incredible teacher, and just a flat-out badass drummer. And, you know, I sat down, and you know, I told him about my background, my history, and he had looked Suicide Silence up, and he's like, oh, that's nice. Um, and he said, you know what, you really don't know shit. <laughs> Um, and so he sat me down and he literally had me play like super simple beats to, a um, to a click for, um, an hour, you know, <laughs> just to understand tempo and playing on time. Um, and I was with him for a few years. I took lessons with him for a few years and I developed a lot, uh, um, better chops. Um, I started studying jazz, um, became one of my favorite, uh, things to play on the kit, um, I met a guy uh, after a while, played uh, some metal with him, wrote some metal with him, and that was a lot of fun. Um, played with a bunch of random people, just jamming here and there, and people I'd meet through Gary or people I'd meet from uh, people I knew through the band. 
And when I moved to the desert, and I hope you get a big kick out of this, um, you know, I was getting that itch. I was working as a chef um, in the desert, and uh, I was getting the urge and the desire to play music. So I found uh, a guy named Greco, uh, who remains my friend to this day, and he was starting a rock and espanol cover band. Um, and I thought, what the hell, I'll give it a shot. So I hit him up. I went and auditioned, and you know, they liked how I played. Um, and uh, they said, uh, you want to do this? I said, sure. So I got introduced to the world of Mana and Caifanes and Enanitos Verdes and Soda Estéreo and all of that wonderful music. And I'd never heard any of that before, um, but I started playing with that cover band. I was with them for about a year or two, and we played quinceañeras and... Uh, played weddings, we played bars. Um, it was a lot of fun uh, playing a totally different style of music than I was used to. I mean, it's mostly rock beats, but there was a couple songs uh, that incorporated some cumbias, which is a lot of fun to learn. And after that, you know, just playing with random people here and there, um, play by myself for the most part. Um, I think for the most part, I'm a loner. I'm too high strung. I'm probably not a very good band member because I am so just picky and, uh, uh, <laughs> and anxious most of the time but uh every once in a while um you know i'll get the urge and i'll play with somebody just to write something heavy or write something fun uh, but for the most part i just play by myself now dang that's crazy and cool to hear about you kind of um you having uh more free time and you kind of exploring and uh wanting to still grow your skills as a drummer most definitely. Um, now that I didn't have to focus on just one you know, particular style and because I wasn't doing Suicide Silence full time anymore, and I think I just finished school. So I was literally only working and then working a lot of hours, but I had the time to budget um, you know, lessons in. Um, and it was important for me to just try to develop a little bit more. I love drumming, even though I was... I never considered, nor do I consider myself today to be that good of a drummer. I still love it and I enjoy learning and, you know, le learning how to read sheet music, learning about jazz, getting introduced to that whole world of, of drummers. Um, my God, people like um, Tony Williams and uh, Elvin Jones and all those cats and other guys like Bernard Purdy and then learning more about like, you know, the Pecoros of the world and, and stuff like that that was that was fun i think that was i did everything backwards you know i joined a band that got relatively big relatively quickly um and then afterwards i decided i better go learn how to actually drum and learn about the world of drum technique have you ever seen that movie whiplash i love whiplash, uh, whiplash. terrific movie um well made um exaggerated um, i think the uh the guy the main actor is full of shit when he says that that was him playing um, I don't think, I don't think they released who actually played those parts, but I've seen that kid play. There's a video of him on YouTube playing and I'm, I'm sorry, no fucking chance. That's interesting. I didn't know that he had a, a double to play his drum parts. Absolutely. I mean, the, the drumming on that last jam, uh, when he plays caravan is absolutely bananas. It's a, whoever's playing is just a fantastic, just incredible drummer. Um, and unless the actor has dedicated 15 years of his life to play those kinds of licks and that ain't him. Um, and I could be totally wrong and I'll eat, uh, you know, crow cereal for breakfast tomorrow, but I don't, I don't think so. 
well, um, I have no idea. This is the first time I'm ever hearing that he didn't, um, or that there could be uh, a double for his drumming parts. I'll have to look into it and maybe get back to you about that. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. I look in, I, again, I, I kind of just briefly looked into it afterwards. And I think just the, the lack of commitment on the actor's part, um, when asked about whether or not he did the drumming, I just, I saw something there. And then when I looked it up and looked at a video of him playing live in like a, a radio set, it, it didn't add up. Um, so if you, if you find the actor's name, look him up on YouTube and um, you be the judge. <laughs> yeah. Uh, his name is Miles Teller. There you go. Yeah. That guy. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of his work, um, but I, I'm really curious about this whole uh, drumming situation. So I'm, I'm definitely going to look into it um, once we wrap up here. I would. Yeah, I'm actually going to look into it too. It's been a few years, but um, terrific movie. The 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 lead in it. Um, oh, I forget the actor's name, but he's absolutely phenomenal. It's a great movie. It's a lot of fun, and I can I can't speak personally or relate to what um that you know the boy miles teller is going through um, because i never went to a music academy but again my drum teacher gary did and he would talk about um, having a drum instructor who would literally hit his fingers if he went out of tempo they'd stand there with a with a drumstick and just hit him right on the knuckles if he went off tempo so i know musical academies musician schools take things very very seriously sometimes to the extreme Wow, I don't think I would be into that at all. <laughs> <laughs> no, nor would I. It sounds no. Mm-mm. Yeah, and no, I would not want some person uh, hitting my knuckles. Uh, that would just irritate me so much. No kidding. I've got bony knuckles too. I'm gonna have serious arthritis one day. I can tell. That's crazy. I, I remember uh, the only time I ever had like, um, like issues with my hand besides like the one time I broke my hand um I was obsessed with World of Warcraft and I I would play like, like so much like it was like literally like consume my life and like I started to like develop a carpal tunnel and I, I got like really scary and I was like what the hell this is all from playing this game so uh I, I took like a break for for like a long time because I, I didn't want to you know, actually get carpal tunnel and have my hands be all messed up and weird. Man, that is serious. Um, but I, uh, I appreciate um, your dedication to, to playing WoW. Um, and you know who else loves WoW? It's Corpse Grinder. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. Yeah, look up Corpse Grinder World of Warcraft, and he's, uh, um, and I, I know very little to nothing about World of Warcraft, but he seems very up on it, and, and he is quite passionate about the subject. Okay. So kind of wanted to switch gears and um, talk about uh, 2012. You uh, came back to play with Suicide Sounds for Mitch's memorial show. That's right. And can you talk about how your approach um to get or excuse me approach to um you know asked to get uh to, to play the show excuse me I'm, kind of, I'm messing up my words right now um but i i remember watching the dvd and seeing you up there um and i i thought that was really special and cool that they um brought you back can you talk about what, what that whole experience was like yeah um it was definitely interesting it was weird um 
you know, obviously I wish it was under better circumstances as, as everybody did. Um, you know, I was, uh, again, at the time living in the desert, um, and, uh, Jerry, the manager had hit me up and asked if I would participate in a, in a tribute, you know, in the memorial show. And, and I certainly said, yes. Um, and he asked if I still played first, first, he asked if I still played secondly, he asked if I still had the mask. Um, and I said, yes, to both. And, um, so started rehearsing, came down and, uh, played with Garza for you know, a couple times, um, yeah, you know, I brought the songs that we were going to play back up and started rehearsing by myself at my house um, and got the chops back up. I hadn't been doing a lot of blast beats at the time, but, um, you know, given the fact that I had developed better hands, it was much easier for me to pick it back up. Um, but, uh, yeah, the show itself was really interesting, really emotional, um, you know, seeing a lot of old faces. Uh, rehearsing for the show was interesting. We had a rehearsal studio somewhere in, uh, I want to say, in Whittier, where we had jammed out, um, and, you know, and the guys that sang the songs in place of Mitch, you know, these are some of my best friends, Greg Wilburn, um, very dear friend of mine from Oblige and, uh, the devastated. Um, and if you don't know Greg's work, my God, Greg is, and I've told him this recently, he is one of the best metal vocalists I've ever heard in my life. Like, he's absolutely incredible. Um, uh, but uh, Greg and then uh, Brooke from Impending Doom and then Johnny from uh, from JFAC uh, sang. It was interesting. Um, you know, personally, it was it was challenging to get through because, again, when I played my last show with Suicide Silence in 2006, I didn't know at the time that it was my last show. So I didn't feel like I ever got a you know a good goodbye to really say you know farewell to something that I enjoyed doing for for so long. So having, you know, played the memorial show under such, you know, tragic circumstances, um, you know, but also reconnecting with something that I didn't get to properly, um, you know, close the book on. It was very weird. A lot of different emotions kind of grabbing me in different directions. Um, I actually broke down for a minute. Like right before we were about to start playing, I started to, um, you know, get a little upset and started to cry a little bit um, because it was, it was just so overwhelming. I think more than anything, it was just so overwhelming. Um, and, you know, and I had lost touch with Mitch for a long time. And, uh, and I can say, you know, just very briefly on that, that we were very close um, in our very, um, you know, in our younger years um, in high school and then outside of high school, uh, even before that. Um, so to not have reconnected and then to be there uh, memorializing him in such a way was very interesting. It was a very heady experience, incredibly emotional. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess I could say I had fun, but at the same time, it was incredibly stressful. Um, that was handed down the largest crowd I'd ever, I'd ever played in front of. I don't think uh, New England Metal Fest had, had that many kids. Um, so it was weird. It's a very, very weird experience, but very lucky that Rick was able to come down for that. Um, so glad to reconnect with some people. And uh, yeah, I mean, all in all, it was for a very good cause. Um, and I think it was a great send off to somebody who deserved, um, you know, something like that. Yeah. I definitely thought the show was, um, awesome. I, I, I don't think I'd ever seen anything done like that before, um, to, uh, you know, in memory of somebody and, you know, getting, uh, the band and so many people to come in and actually make it super special. So I, I thought it was like a, definitely like a cool thing that they're able to pull that off. And, yeah, and all credit to Jerry. 
you know, I mean, if anybody could do it, he's the guy to do it. So I have no idea how he pulled that many people together, but, um, you know, kudos for him for making it happen. And I, yeah, I, I didn't know, um, cause I was always curious. I, I didn't know if you guys all, you know, practiced together, you know, um, for the set or if you guys, you know, y'all just kind of practiced on your own. So it's cool to, um, get some insight about, about that. Um, but it, it, it's definitely crazy that you didn't know um, back then that the, uh, the metal fest was going to be your last show with the band. Um, Cause that definitely, I, I can only imagine like how much that, that probably did suck that you didn't really get like a proper like send off or, you know, goodbye and just kind of have that have to like linger. Cause there's really not much you can do after that. But the fact that, um, uh, you know, you're able to play again, obviously the circumstances, um, you know, weren't like the best but the fact that you were able to come back and play i guess your final show i i think that is cool that you you, um, were able to get some closure with that sure um i think that's probably the best way to put it is i I did get closure with it um and again under incredibly terrible circumstances i would never have it that way nobody would obviously um but uh yeah and the fact that i didn't know the california metal fest was my last show um it happens you know i think none of us um you know all being in our early 20s at the time we 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 weren't very uh, how do you say emotionally intelligent or aware of these kinds of things we were just kind of making it up as we went along um so i don't think anybody should be faulted for for that happening but um you know it's uh it is what it is um and uh yeah, I'm just very appreciative of what I was able to get and uh, reconnect with people. But, uh, um, yeah, again, um, really interesting how it all went down, but kudos to the people who made it happen. And again, Jerry is, uh, is just terrific with coordinating that kind of thing. I still don't know how he did it. So fast forward to now, um, what are you currently up to? Are you doing anything um, with music or are you just kind of living a normal life? Well, I hope my life is normal. Um, and I, I kind of use that. Uh, that's, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm, I, I use the, tor- the term normal like loosely because I don't even know what nor- normal is. I, I just you know kind of threw it out there. Through that. No, I'm with you, man. Um, and that is, that is an absolute uh, astute way to, I think, assess that and, and catch yourself. And as we all kind of assume the uh, assumed role in life, right? Um, I would suppose in the traditional sense, I'm about as normal as they come. I have a nine to five Monday through Friday. Um, I work for a school district um, and uh, things are pretty darn regular. Um, I've, I've said this to many friends over the years that I really do like routine. Um, and, and, and again, that I think really does illustrate the fact that being in a band long term was a really bad idea and not something that... Um, would have worked out in the long run. Uh, but again, when we're in our early 20s or late teens, um, you know, we're not learning very much about ourselves. I mean, we hardly know, I hardly know that, that much about myself in my mid-30s, let alone late teens, early 20s, where you're filled with testosterone and everybody's telling you you're you're awesome, you're amazing, your band is incredible. Um, not a good place to do some self-reflection. But um, I am just incredibly fortunate to be where I am today. Um, you know, I feel lucky beyond what I deserve, but um, I would say for the most part, things are very normal. 
I still play drums as often as possible, once or twice a week, just to make sure I don't lose it. And I just love it. It's a lot of fun hitting things. Um, beyond that, there's not much else uh, to my life, man. It's pretty simple. I love it. Again, I've been with the same person for more than half my life now. Um, I don't know how she puts up with me, um, but uh, I'm so very fortunate that we were able to kind of navigate through those uh, rocky waters during suicide silence and we're able to stick it out together and now it's uh, just something in a rearview mirror and uh, we get to reminisce whenever Chris comes over or I go to see him and his mom and we just chat about the uh, quote-unquote glory days which really aren't a thing it's just uh, something normal people say right yeah which is um weird to me because like um like i i don't feel my age because i'm currently 31 but uh i i don't feel 31 because like when i was like a teenager or in my early 20s when i would like you know hear you know people were that old it was just weird to me i was like oh wow that person's like really old like they must be an adult or you know just doing something like like you know older stuff but now like i'm here i'm that age like i i don't feel it it's just like it's just a weird thing because um you know being younger you, you kind of uh, assume that there's like some big turning point in your life where you turn into an adult but like you kind of grow to realize that that, that doesn't really happen like I, I feel like everybody's still just you know trying to figure out life as they go along there's not like you know that point where like you you know transform and ascend to an adult Dude, I mean, you're, you're spot on. Um, it's so very true. And you're 31. That's good. Be, turning 30 is rough. That, that number is just, it just sounds gross. Just 30. But once you get to 31 and you're, you're in your thirties, you're cool. I'm 34 now. Um, last year I had a moment where I remembered a part from a movie called the rock with Sean Connery. Um, and there's a part in it where Ed Harris, one of the actors says to another guy, he says, how old are you, sir? And the guy says, I'm 33. And I think back on like, my God, that guy was super old in that movie. Like he looked old, like he had gray hair, he had glasses, he wore a really ugly suit. That's everything I am. I have gray hair. I wear glasses. I wear ugly suits. Um, but, um, yeah, we don't know when that transition is right from childhood to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity. Um, I have moments though, a few weeks ago I was at work and, uh, one of my team members came up to me and they were sharing something about, um, their daughter, something their daughter had done in school. And, and I had so very naturally, like I didn't force it. I just said, wow, that's, that's terrific. You know, good for you. And I asked a question. I said, well, that's just great. You know? And after I, I was done having that conversation, I just realized, oh my God, like I'm that person, you know, I'm, I'm my boss from the first place I ever worked where you, you, you just, when those kinds of things come up, those seemingly trivial things, um, and you invest so much emotion and energy into asking them about it, you know, it just, it comes so naturally. And I'm grateful that it does because I certainly don't want to come off as fake. Um, but it just, it just really made me feel old. It really made me feel like you are becoming that adult, you know, you're, you're no longer closed off. You're no longer, you know, uh, you can no longer fake it. You can't just pretend like it's okay to be totally introverted and ignore, you know, other people's, um, uh, world. So I don't know when it happens, man, but it is fascinating. And, um, I think because I am so fidgety and I'm um, anxious and I don't 
often take stock of things as they change. As I get older, I do look back and I'm starting to pick up on moments where I identify with becoming an adult and becoming older. And that's when things like suicide silence and playing in a metal band in your late teens, early 20s becomes so much more, I guess, special because that was your, you know, your adolescence on steroids, really. Um, uh, and, and I hope that as I get older, I appreciate those times more and more as an opportunity to learn and to mature. And that, that's really awesome. Like, I, I'm really happy that um, you're able to come on here and like enlighten me um, with all my um, questions about your time in the band and I, I honestly, I definitely have enjoyed this conversation and I appreciate you working with my schedule. Um, I, I know I missed our first call time, so I, I'm seriously uh, appreciative of you. I'm still willing to take the time and come on here and talk to me because it definitely means a lot to me. You're very welcome, Jamie. And I am grateful of your time. And as I said, I'm on vacation right now, so it worked out just perfectly. And before we sign off, is there anything you would like to say? Anything you want to shout out or plug? Oh, no, no. It just, um, I hope everybody is well wherever they are hearing this. And thank you again, Jamie, for the conversation. I enjoyed it immensely. All right. Well, there you guys have it. This has been another episode of the Jamie K podcast. Always on top. <laughs>